0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week we're happy to have Edwin Burroughs on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, Forgotten Patriots, The Untold Story of American Prisoners During the Revolutionary War. Some of you may be familiar with Professor Burroughs' work, as you will have read his terrific Gotham, A History of New York City to 1898, he wrote that book with Mike Wallace, and it won the Pulitzer Prize in History in 1999. Well, I'm happy to say that Professor Burroughs is back with another terrific book, Forgotten Patriots. Uh, this book concerns the fate of American and, to some extent, British prisoners of war during the Revolutionary War. Uh, it's quite a picture he paints, and it is, as he says in the book, a forgotten story. I, I didn't know anything about these prisoners of war, and I was very happy to learn about them from such a steady hand as Professor Burrows. So I really enjoyed talking to him today, and I hope that you enjoy the interview. Here it is. Hi, Ted. Hi, Marshall. How are you? I'm very well today. It's a beautiful day here in Iowa. We're having uncharacteristically nice weather. You're in New York, is that right?
1: Yeah, and it's raining
0: here. So I'm, I'm sorry to hear 22. that. We, we will send you our sunshine um let me tell let me tell our listeners that we're happy to have Ted Burroughs on the show today, and we'll be talking about his new book, Forgotten Patriots: The Untold Story of American Prisoners during the Revolutionary War. Um, i've read the book, and I think it was absolutely terrific um, ted Ted, you obviously have a a gift for writing uh, what is both basically informed history and a very readable history. I've gotten one of those two down. <laughs> and I would say that's true of most academic historians, but you uh, can serve as a kind of model for us all. And I, I have to say I was, I was reading passages out loud to my wife saying, why can't I write this sentence? Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I'm flattered. Right well, so there. it's absolutely true. So why don't you begin by telling us just a little bit about yourself, what the Germans call a Lebenslauf, you know, the, the yeah. course of your, your, your uh, of your life to this point.
1: Well, actually, though, I live in New York, I'm a native of uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan. I was a faculty oh. brat and attended the University of Michigan um, on a uh, $65 a year scholarship. Yeah. And those were the good old days. Yeah, those were the good um, old days. I was a, I was a, uh, originally started out, uh, curiously enough, as a physics major, and um, at some point midway in my undergraduate career i took a couple of history courses that uh, i just fell in love with and became a history major by the time i graduated
2: mm-hmm.
1: um then i went to columbia in new york which was my my first visit to the big city actually.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm.
1: and i became a student of uh richard hofstadter mckittrick's mm-hmm. And I certainly, uh, to the extent that I learned anything about writing um, at Columbia, I, I, I owe a great deal to Richard Hofstadter, as mm-hmm. you probably know. Oh,
2: one sure. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: um And I got interested in in early American history and uh, wrote a dissertation on um, a man named Albert Gallatin, who was, uh, among other things, Thomas Jefferson's Treasury Secretary. Uh, that book. Um, came out oh in the mid 80s and i think he sold maybe 10 or 15 copies
0: mm-hmm. uh, i have some like that it. yeah <laughs> um,
1: occasionally people read it and I, I i hear about it and see footnotes um while i was uh while i was still a graduate student i had landed a job at, at brooklyn college and this was back in the days when uh, teaching jobs were really pretty scarce and mm-hmm. of entering another period like that so mm-hmm. i uh, I began uh, my teaching career at Brooklyn and am still there uh,
2: mm-hmm. several
1: decades later. Um, it was at at Brooklyn I began teaching courses in uh, early American history, colonial history, the American Revolution.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and in the in, after a few years of that, I thought it might be fun to try a course on the history of New York City, mm-hmm. which I found increasingly interesting and didn't mm-hmm. know a thing about, basically. And uh, my my friend and, and eventual collaborator Mike Wallace and I began talking about um, doing a a history of New York City or or trying to find things that we could use in class for mm-hmm. our students and realized that there was nothing in fact available on the history of New mm-hmm. York City that would um, come up to the standards anyway of an undergraduate uh, history course. Mm-hmm. And one thing led to another, and eventually we decided to try to write such a book. Mm-hmm. Um, we initially envisioned it as a very small book, single volume that would uh, go from the beginning to the present. And what happened, of course, is that once we got started on it, it mushroomed and grew like Pinocchio's nose, It <laughs> consumed years and years of research and reading. And eventually, about maybe 15 years later, after we had both occasionally become distracted by other projects, Uh, we produced this large book called Gotham, Mm -hmm. which takes the story of New York City down only to
2: 1898.
1: Mm -hmm. So we got only about halfway along after 15 years of intensive research and reading and writing, and uh, managed to do so in the space of 1,400 pages, Wow! much longer than what we had originally bargained on.
0: 1400 very readable pages. Well, That's thank you. The, yeah, uh,
1: so far so good. Yeah, uh, I won't tell you about all the mistakes that we made. <laughs> um, it was actually it was in the course of of doing some of the, the research for Gotham that I came across this story of the prison ships. And once again, I thought that uh, this would be a this would be a great thing to, to to write and teach about. And the more I investigated it, the less I found. And um, we managed to put together, a, I think, a pretty decent chapter on the British occupation of New York during the Revolutionary War. Uh-huh. Um, but I found it very difficult to find material on the story of these prisons and prison ships in uh-huh. And it went down on my list. I was keeping a running list as I went of, of things to look into once the Gotham Project was done. hmm and uh, a few years ago, well, four or five years ago, I um, I picked it up again and began digging and poking, and uh, the result is Forgotten Patriots.
0: mm mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What sort of sources did you find um, on this little-known topic? As you say, the I like that expression: the more I looked, the less I found.
1: This book draws on a variety of things. Uh, I I there, there are a couple of big sources. A lot of the material as. As uh, my fellow historians who know this period um, will will attest is a lot of it is published so that there's a pretty good uh quantity of you know personal correspondence mm-hmm. um, as well as official documents that are now available on print and online um so i found I found that to be very helpful but I was especially um I was especially taken by the material that I found in pension applications mm-hmm. Um, this is a, a, a somewhat underused source, I think, by historians. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it originates uh, really in the early 1800s when the federal government um, finally got around to providing pensions after considerable debate about this, mm-hmm. uh, providing pensions for Revolutionary War veterans. And uh, the law required them to go to a local court and tell their story. And mm-hmm. all of these stories are written down. There's about 80,000 of them. Wow. It's an immense uh, oral history of the American Revolution. Mm -hmm. Um, Not without its problems, because, of course, many of these men were now in their 60s, 70s, and in some cases, 80s, uh, when they filed these applications and told their stories. Mm -hmm. So they have to be used fairly carefully because memory does play tricks. Um, But the men who had been prisoners... Of the British, uh, in some cases, left these amazing accounts of what they endured Mm -hmm. uh, as prisoners of war during the the Revolutionary War, Mm
2: -hmm. Um,
1: and I found that that their testimony was was really quite remarkable and moving, actually. um, And I relied very heavily on that. I also uh, used a lot of newspapers. Mm -hmm. Um, Fortunately, now uh, most American newspapers published in the United States before the eighteen seventies are available online. Yeah, isn't that terrific? Um, it's an amazing resource and I'm I'm absolutely certain that it's gonna transform the way we write mm-hmm. American history for mm-hmm. sure because you can do word searches on mm-hmm. the names of prison ships or the names of mm-hmm. individuals or battles and find mm-hmm. information that would mm-hmm. have taken in the old days months, weeks,
0: you know, years yeah. I, t- I tell my graduate students about the old days and card catalogs and yeah, having to look I through think. every edition of well, I mean, Pravda yeah, and writing yeah, it down yeah. Yeah.
1: from archive to archive, mm-hmm. summer after summer after yeah. summer, and I could sit and do research in my pajamas at home. Yeah, but yeah. Um, you know, would have taken would have taken an incredible amount of time. Mm-hmm. Probably would have been impossible. I yeah. Yeah. So uh, there's quite a there's quite a variety of sources. Um, and and the more I dug um, The more I dug into the original sources uh, The more I realized What a remarkable story this was mm-hmm. and, and just became At many points Flabbergasted that nobody has really Paid very much attention to
0: this mm-hmm. Well why don't we ask you uh, Go ahead I'm sorry to interrupt you No, no. I was going to say why don't, why don't you tell us the story of these prison ships then How were these men captured And uh, under what conditions were they held
1: Well it Forgotten Patriots is actually not just about the prison ships. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the real focus is on the prisons and prison ships of New York City, mm-hmm. um, and New York City was the headquarters and nerve center of, the, of British operations in North America during the war. And in in large part because they didn't effectively control the area around New York City, um, it was a kind of Gibraltar-like fortress during most of the war.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, most prisoners who were captured, either on land or uh, on the high seas, were brought back to New York and, and held um, for the duration of the conflict, really, or until they expired. Um, and this book is really an attempt to to see the revolution from the standpoint of the prisoners, to, to put the re- to put the, pr- the prisoners back in the story, so to speak. So, mm-hmm. Partly about the prison ships, but it's also about um, many of the land based prisons.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: the conditions in these places were appalling, uh, to say the least. Uh, there were at times uh, four, five, six, seven thousand men, the numbers are really difficult to, uh, to come by, it's all kind of guesswork,
2: mm-hmm.
1: who were. Crammed into the holds of, of broken-down warships, or into uh, a collection of public buildings actually in the city—churches, sugar houses, private dwellings—they um, were never—they were never fed uh, properly. Uh, they very often had to go through winters without adequate firewood. They never had fresh water, and of course, under those kinds of conditions, um, diseases ran rampant, um, and. My guess is that of the of the maybe thirty thousand or so men who were held uh, in and around New York City during the war—that too is a guess, by the way—I mm-hmm. um, think that maybe sixty and at some points as many as seventy percent of them perished,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and that was a starvation and disease.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, uh, what was the status of these prisoners uh, under? Um, I guess two sets of laws. One would be uh, the laws of war, rather ill-codified, and then the laws of the um, British crown. Uh,
1: prisoners of war in the, in the 18th century um, were, were, were treated more by customs than by law. There was no mm-hmm. international law governing uh, the treatment of prisoners. There were jurists and, and uh, legal scholars who, who wrote about um, what, how prisoners ought to be treated, um, but those were largely unenforceable uh, suggestions, guidelines mm-hmm. that were often honored in the breach more than the observance. Mm-hmm. Um, American American prisoners, um, however, didn't fall within even those of. Uh, fairly vague guidelines because they were regarded by the British as rebels and Mm -hmm. traits rather than uh, actual prisoners of war. Mm -hmm. And in fact, until the very end of the war, uh, the British government really refused to recognize captured Americans as prisoners of war um, because they saw, I think quite correctly, that doing so would uh, to some degree acknowledge the legitimacy of Congress. They didn't want... Congress. They didn't want to recognize Congress as a, mm-hmm. as a, as a foreign power. Mm-hmm. So American prisoners, whatever rules there were, customs, regulations, governing the treatment of prisoners, didn't apply to Americans. Mm-hmm. They, they, were, they, were, uh, they were regarded as um, essentially criminals.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, also, in 1777, Parliament suspended habeas corpus. Um, to prevent the possibility that anybody would go to court and uh, ask the government to either bring charges against captured Americans or release them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, this was a response particularly to the case of Ethan Allen, uh, mm-hmm. who was the first major American uh, to, be, to be captured by the British. And he was uh, dragged off to England and thrown in a, in a, in a castle. And then, uh, as soon as the possibility that um, some of his supporters in, in England would uh, get a rid of habeas corpus, the government hustled him back to the colony so that uh, he, he could uh, remain a prisoner indefinitely.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, suspending habeas corpus made it possible to hold captured Americans indefinitely without bringing charges, uh, without any kind of uh, no requirements that they be well treated or anything,
2: mm-hmm. um,
1: and in fact, it wasn't really until the very, very end of the war that Parliament uh, rescinded that action and and allowed Americans to be treated as prisoners of war.
2: So, a mm-hmm.
1: good deal of of the uh, of the of the abuse that Americans were subjected to, uh, I think, stems from the fact that they were in this kind of legal limbo. Mm -hmm.
0: Now then, under English law, they were to have been uh, tried for something like, I don't know what the right word to use is, but something like sedition. Sedition, treason. Treason. uh, Rebellion. Um, There was a one of the interesting
1: things that I I realized in the course of doing this research is that um, England... England had a long history uh, in the 18th century of provincial uprisings of mm-hmm. one kind or another. Um, places like Ireland and Scotland and even Wales were mm-hmm. always in a state of some uh, discontent. And there were occasional outbreaks like the Scottish uprising in 1745. And British authorities responded to these uh, with um, what can only be described as, as severe repression. And that became the kind of model for dealing with, with trouble on the periphery of the empire. Mm-hmm. Send in the army, round up a whole bunch of people, execute them, uh, burn villages, and that'll end the trouble. Mm-hmm. And that was largely the way that uh, the British government in the beginning of the war imagined that it would deal with the trouble in the, in the colonies. Um, mm-hmm. By the use of maximum force and, and in effect, a kind of uh, brutality that was often referred to in those days as war ad terrorum, mm-hmm. that is to say, war to the extremity. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't work. It backfired, uh, as, as I make clear in the book, um, by outraging large numbers of Americans and convincing many people like Benjamin Franklin.
0: Mm-hmm. That,
1: it was a reason why reconciliation was impossible.
0: Mm-hmm. Let me let me go back just for a second to this uh, sure. question of habeas corpus because it's on mm-hmm. people's minds these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, was the sticking point from the Crown's point of view then that they uh, didn't have the resources to bring all the charges that they needed? Or was it the case that they... Um, Oh, yeah, what was the case? I guess I don't well, quite understand.
1: I, I, think, I think the sticking point. Yes, I think that was part of it. I think it was also that um, they did not want to find themselves um, with this problem in the courts. Um, to litigate this thing would would raise the possibility of, of a jury, uh, you know, a runaway jury deciding mm-hmm. that uh, the American cause was legitimate. And this would this would create all kinds of domestic political problems, for the yeah, government, yeah. which they just didn't want to have
0: to deal with. So then they and really they really did face a kind of dilemma. In other words, on the one hand, they didn't want to uh, grant the Americans the status of prisoners of war because that was legitimate, in some sense, their cause. On the other hand, they didn't want to litigate all of these cases, or they could well, not litigate not, all these cases, would,
1: yeah. Right, because the, the the perception was, the governing perception, I think, was that, that this was essentially a military problem, mm-hmm. uh, and that if it got turned into a political problem, it would be uh, unsolvable. Mm-hmm. So did in fact, turn out turn out badly?
0: Did uh, constitutional scholars or lawyers or uh, jurists or those funny folks in wigs uh, say that this was a rather odd thing to do and these Americans were in... A kind of legal limbo that was uh, contra English
1: well, legal there principles. There was a little bit of debate about this when when Congress uh, when the uh, when Parliament passed the uh, the act suspending habeas corpus, there were a handful of people in Parliament who stood up and said, you know, this is this is unconscionable and wrong, and so forth. Um, and and Lord North, who was the nominal head of the government, uh, made a nice little speech saying that, well, you know, this is. Uh, either, either these are difficult times, and we have a, a problem on our hands that has to be dealt with uh, sternly. Besides, um, we're not going to do anything uh, domestically that will uh, that should alarm you. This is uh, only something uh, that is a response to the immediate crisis in the colonies.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: and there was such a wave of anti-American feeling in, in not only in Parliament but in the in the country as a whole. Mm-hmm. in The early stages of the war, anyway, that. Very few people uh, really adjusted to
0: this. So did the uh, American authorities themselves, that is, um, the proto-Congress and Washington and his staff, did they protest against the treatment of American prisoners in New York?
1: All the time. All the time. Over and over again, constantly um, and threatened frequently to retaliate against uh, British prisoners that Mm -hmm. they got their hands on. but they never really did. There were, there are a few examples that I cite in the book where, some uh, prisoners were, uh, officers in particular were, you know, put under lock and key for a while, uh, mm-hmm. as, you know, as uh, by way of sending a message to the to the British. But by and large, uh, Congress and especially Washington just didn't have the stomach to retaliate on on British prisoners, so mm-hmm. they were pretty much uh, forced to settle for uh, loud and lengthy protests uh, for, the, for the duration of the war.
0: so did they use this as a, as a as a propaganda tool
1: Oh very much i mean that's that 's where in fact the, the use of, of newspapers is particularly revealing. Um, this was talked about all the time um, Congress. Conducted several different investigations in the course of the war, producing affidavits and other documents uh, about the experiences of prisoners in New York and elsewhere. Um, but it was it was also something that that really electrified American public opinion uh, as soon as the the first stories began to get out. There was just a wave of reaction uh, in the in the and I think that. I think that these stories, as they as they circulated, as as uh, some prisoners would be occasionally released and they would come back home, or they would they would tell their stories in in, uh, in private letters or in, in uh, newspaper interviews, um, it caused a real backlash, and that many Americans who I think might have been straddling the fence in the early stages of the war became committed patriots. Mm-hmm. Uh, as these stories began to circulate.
0: What did the British say uh, against these charges? How did they try to did they try to defend themselves? Did they answer them at all? <laughs> Almost not
1: at all. Um that's one of the more interesting things about this is that British commanders like General Howe General Clinton, and even Cornwallis in the in the later stages of the war, they knew that this was a public relations nightmare. That they had really they had really ignited this firestorm of 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 hostility to the British that they were losing as a result of this um, the war for the hearts and minds of of the American population Mm -hmm. but they really didn't come up with any kind of systematic uh, response Uh, not during the war and certainly not after the war Uh, there were one or two occasions when some kind of mid-range British officials in New York would would try to you know put together Something of a response to this, uh, there, I tell the story of uh, one or two occasions where uh, they would try to uh, get together their own depositions and their own uh, uh, statements from from officials that Americans were not being mistreated, but they were so patently patently contrived that that nobody, I think, could take them seriously. Mm-hmm.
0: Why? I guess well, <laughs> this may sound like a silly question, but uh, 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 why didn't the British take these American prisoners and impress them into the Royal Navy and send them to the other side of the world?
1: <laughs> well, you know, there's a there's a theory that uh, and I think there's some truth in this, at least at points in the story. That one of the reasons for for at, at least stinting on provisions for prisoners was that they would get hungry and desperate enough that they would in fact enlist in the navy. Uh-huh. Um, that's one of the things that that distinguishes. You know the present circumstances uh that the united states faces in say iraq and afghanistan yeah with the, with the situation during the revolutionary war nobody ever argued that mistreating prisoners in iraq or afghanistan was designed to enlist mm-hmm. find enlistment for the, for the army there's some reason to think that in the revolutionary war that was uh, that was done and indeed it worked occasionally there are there are reports that um you know um, not many but some certainly uh, over the years, some prisoners did indeed enlist um, those stories also suggest however that that the men who enlisted would very often enlist go have a nice meal uh do a brief tour of duty, and then then escape and go back to mm-hmm. the American side so mm-hmm. um, I don't think that it happened very often when if it was a recruiting tool, it wasn't terribly successful.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe we could talk a little bit about these prison ships, which I sound fascinating, and I- I should I should tell our listeners that there are some terrific uh, reproductions of uh, I guess their nineteenth century prints. Yeah. Uh, of, of the of the prison ships, and they do indeed look incredibly terrifying and spooky. Uh, can you tell us about the history of prison ships in general, and how these particular ships were outfitted in order to be prison ships? Because they, uh, until you see the plates, you you don't really realize that they yeah. they are ships in sort of name only. Right,
1: stripped of every usable piece of equipment. Yeah. reduced to hulks. Yeah, like. this was often this was often described at the time as hulking
2: ships.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, And then in in the case of of New York, they would be anchored uh, most often in Wallabat Bay, which is a little cove on the Brooklyn side of the East River. Um, The British had used prison ships, as far as I can tell, um, a a little bit in the past for um, Scottish prisoners captured in the, uh, the uprising in 1745, and they had been used to a certain extent during the French and Indian War, the Seven Years' War. Mm -hmm. Uh, But they had never been used quite so extensively as they would be during the American Revolution. There were probably anywhere from 15 to 20 uh, prison ships or hospital ships, which were much different from the prison ships that were used uh, in the course of the war to house American prisoners. And what I found particularly interesting was that that at the same time the British were were making the decision to use prison ships, um, prison ships were also being used in England um, in response to the trouble in the colonies. And Mm -hmm. and what had happened is that that English courts were in the habit, as we know, of of sentencing convicted felons to transportation to Mm -hmm. the colonies. But when the troubles in America started, uh, transportation was no longer uh, a feasible alternative. So the prison population of England began to grow quite sharply, mm-hmm. and the the surplus um, was stored on prison ships that were anchored in the Thames around <laughs> the same time that, that the American Revolutionary War was starting. Uh-huh. So the decision to use prison ships in the colonies was really the, the flip side of a, of a decision to use prison ships um, back in England itself. And all of these places were, were just known to be dreadful beyond description.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, the, w- there were many reformers actually in England who began to attack the use of prison ships um, very early and uh, there was a... There were kind of steady series of reports during the Revolutionary War that the mm-hmm. ships were terrible. But they would, those, those criticisms were never uh, directed at the prison ships in America that were being used to um, air, to confine American prisoners. So
2: mm-hmm. the a
0: double standard that was being applied there.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I just found it very interesting that they would take uh, what was about to be a decommissioned ship, and, and, and tell me if I'm wrong here, they would sail it over to America. Strip it of basically all of its naval wares, and then outfit it for prisoners. That that was the basic plan, wasn't it?
1: That was the basic plan, and it was it actually made a certain kind of sense because the British didn't have anywhere else to put these people. Right. And if you were to anchor uh, one of these prison ships in a place like Wallabout Bay, you'd be out in the the center of this broad area of shallow water and mudflats and so forth, which would make escape very difficult. Mm -hmm. Um, It was was clearly understood at the time that men can find large numbers of men confined uh, in close quarters with very poor sanitation and, and nutrition would be subject to contagious diseases, and it was, it was thought uh, a good idea to um, move these prison ships to a place that was, uh, in those days, outside of New York City. Mm-hmm. So a lot of things made the idea of a prison ship um, anchored somewhat away from the city itself. It seem like a pretty smart response mm-hmm. to this problem because the British were capturing large numbers of Americans they didn't really have a, a, a an immediately uh, good need to deal with them.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, one one of the things I think that uh, I, I I don't remember whether you mentioned this in the book or not, but it, it, they also served as as kind of a, a a living example to the the residents in the area of what would happen in the case of yeah. Because uh, yeah, there they were. I mean, really, I, I have to say again, these these prints are they are positively they're they're almost gothic. Yeah, they, they're funny, so like, scary. Them, yeah, uh, it's true, but. And, but everybody could see them there from Brooklyn and from... Exactly. Yeah, right, exactly. And there I they mean, were. In
1: fact, you couldn't only see them, but uh, there are some reports that you could smell them yeah. it was in the wrong direction. Like, it must have been horrible.
0: Also, what did they... Um, uh, now, again, I, I know the answer to this question, but I'd like to hear you tell our listeners about it. What, what did they do with them after the war? I found that fascinating.
1: Well, uh, I tried to figure that out. In some cases, there were, there are a few of them were uh, a few of them were actually sold off for scrap. Uh, I found a few newspaper advertisements from the uh, uh, from the weeks and months after the British abandoned the city, indicating that, that some of these ships had been had been effectively broken up and, and pieces sold mm-hmm. off of at auction. The big ship, the one that that everybody ended up, uh, I think. Talking about more than any other is with the Jersey. Um, this was a um, this was a 64-gun frigate that um, was one of the biggest ships in the harbor. It was about 150 feet long and mm-hmm. maybe 40 or so feet wide. Uh, normally carried a crew of around 400, give or take, and at various points had something like 11 or 1200 prisons, Several times its normal component, at mm-hmm. crewmen. So, conditions were just dreadful. Um, people were packed in there like sardines, and, and they were oftentimes um, people who would live to tell the story would, would speak of uh, you know, bodies that would lie for days before they were discovered. Mm-hmm. Absolutely dreadful. Um, and those, those places, those, those ships, were so pestilential. That after the war, the Jersey um, basically disintegrated because nobody wanted to go near it. It mm-hmm. was anchored out in the in wallabout Bay, and for maybe 10 or 15 years after the war, it just slowly broke up and sank into the mud. Mm-hmm. Um, there were some places where souvenir hunters, you know, would go and, and cut the Timbers, pieces of wood, and, mm-hmm. and impact from some of these things, but nobody, nobody, did that with in insurance because it was so, it was considered so
0: dangerous, mm-hmm. and, and so it just fell apart. Yeah, I just find that kind of uh, spooky and, in a weird way, uh, romantic that that Hulk would just sit out there and fall about yeah, Bay yeah, for ten yeah. or fifteen years in in sort of ruins. You know, kind of an uh, it was sort of a symbol of British power in North America. There it is crumbling, and also the cruelty of man to man. I just the image yeah. of it is, is very is, well. Is, you
1: know, after the after the war, when Congress took up residence in New York, um, congressmen would would go over to the, the the Brooklyn side of the East River and, and stand on the, the hill where Fort Green Park now, and mm-hmm. look out over Wallabout Bay. There was the dream breaking up very slowly yeah. out in the mud.
0: Yeah. So then you deal with the question of what to do with. Uh uh, two things, really, one is um, the physical remains of the people that had died, and the British had quickly interred them there on the brooklyn side i guess and then there was the question of uh, memorializing these people, which you, you deal with in a really fascinating way. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the first of those, and then we could come to the second. What did they do to the remains that obviously were improperly buried
1: well from almost from the very toward the very end of the war, um, there were some reports that went out uh, trying to trying to kind of gauge the number of Americans who had lost their lives, uh, particularly on the prison ships. And um, for various reasons, the number 11,644 became a kind of accepted number. And I think probably that's fairly accurate. Uh, It can be corroborated from a couple of other sources. Um, And there was also a discussion as those numbers began to circulate around the colonies, a discussion of whether something shouldn't be done to... Memorialized to commemorate uh, the death of so many Americans, which remember was probably two to three times the number who died in combat. So, as I say in the book, uh, you know, more Americans lost their lives to independence uh, in places like Walled Bay, than they did fighting uh, in battles up and down the up and down the United States.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but this this business of of putting up a monument was very controversial. Um, really interesting to see how Americans in the post-war period handled this question. I mean, we, Mm -hmm. we tend to think fairly without much discussion that when something really horrible like this happens... That one of our first responses was to build a memorial.
0: Yeah, it's, it's very interesting because I, I, was, I was just reading an article about this. We we put monuments up for things that didn't happen in the United States and had no bearing on American history.
1: put up a memorial, hang a wreath, do something you know that, that will sort of remind us and subsequent generations of what had taken place. But in the in the um, in the 1780s and 1790s, there was also this sense that um, statues and obelisks. And, you know, urns and memorials of one kind or another were un mm-hmm. That, uh, the United States was making a clean break with this aristocratic, monarchical Europe, and, mm-hmm. and that those were the kinds of things that, that European monarchs would do, and that, uh, that we American Republicans should, uh, remember and honor, uh, the sacrifices of, of these, uh, Prison ship martyrs, as they were uh, very frequently known at the time, um, by writing books and uh, uh, poetry and song and art and so forth, not in monuments which were considered to be uh, unrepublican and, and inappropriate for the United States. so it was uh, it, it took a long time really before the idea of of commemorating anything that happened in the revolution uh, began to get any sort of traction. And there are actually still relatively few um, revolutionary-era memorials in the United States. You know, the Bunker Hill Memorial, for example, Mm -hmm. uh, memory service, which it may not, uh, dates from the 1830s sometime. I mean, it was was many, many decades after the war before... um, a lot of Americans began thinking that, that maybe the time had come to, to do something to memorialize um, the, the war dead and over the years, there were a number of, of uh, civic organizations, political organizations, Tammany Hall being the most important of them, who would periodically uh, beat the drums for some kind of uh, some kind of a memorial to be to be built um, to commemorate the the Particularly the the prison ship martyrs, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but nothing much ever really came of it. Um, I talk about a number of events in in the early 1800s when Tammany Hall organized these monstrous parades and rallies and so forth, and they would they would uh, collect bones from the beaches of Wallabout and they would deposit them in urns and there would be great orations and money would be collected and so forth. And, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, um, six months later it would all be forgotten <laughs> uh, and, and and nothing you know nothing ever happened really until the later decades of the nineteenth century i mean I'm co- compressing a complicated story yeah, but, yeah. Um, it it really wasn 't until a number of national organizations, uh, one of which turns out to be the d a r which had a lot of people yeah. in their clout, sort of fixed on this uh, topic and began to um, Pressured Congress for a, a substantial grant of money to put up a monument,
2: mm-hmm. and that
1: monument wasn't wasn't completed until 1908, which is well over 100 years after the end of the Revolutionary War. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a testimony to how difficult it is, um, even in the even in the 20th century, uh, to to construct these uh, memorials at public expense.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, you mentioned it's, – it's a very good point you make because I, I know I I lived in D.C. for five or six years, and um, – I remember asking a friend of mine why, why there wasn't a huge memorial in D.C. to the Civil War. And my friend looked at me and he said, have you been to the mall? The entire thing is a memorial to the Civil War. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, and, you know, there is the Washington Monument there, but that wasn't started until quite a bit later, as I understand it. Well, it wasn't even finished until after the Civil War. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, the, the memory of – and every little town in New England and also in the Midwest has its uh, Civil War memorial. You know, they're all over Iowa here. But there's, there's no real memory of, of the Revolutionary Conflict at all and i i would think particularly in the in the context of of the new york area where the built environment is very thick that it must be extraordinarily difficult to even carve out you know 20 square meters to do anything i mean you can see what's going on today with the uh, world trade center monument i don't even i don't that, that 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 story has gone on so long that i think americans have lost interest but i have no so, idea what i don't know i have no idea what's going on with that but yeah you know, the
1: politics are ferocious and um the politicking over over even a simple memorial to uh, the Revolutionary War dead um, mm-hmm. it, was pretty incredible as well.
0: So, what 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 um, uh, just for the purpose of, of, of the many listeners who are in um, the New York area now, and for those that visit what are there existing memorials to the uh, prisoners in the in the there New York are, area?
1: There are two. Uh, there is still the Prison Ship uh, Martyrs Memorial in Fort Greene Park mm-hmm. in Brooklyn, which is just uh, on a uh, hill overlooking that Bay mm-hmm. um, just about to celebrate its 100th anniversary uh-huh. but badly neglected and, uh, and largely forgotten for the last couple of generations I mean that's another part of the story the, the monument went up and then everybody went home and that, was, uh, mm-hmm. and that was the end of it there is a second very small monument in the churchyard of Trinity Church uh, in lower Manhattan on Broadway which was, was put up in the 1850s uh, to commemorate uh, the men who died in a nearby sugar house, mm-hmm. uh, one of the most infamous prisons during the, during the Revolutionary War. Mm-hmm. Um, I tell the story about the construction of that monument, and that, too, was political, um, because, in fact, there is some reason to think that Trinity Church actually put it up to prevent the city from running a street through its <laughs> property. Um, <laughs> the motivation, the yeah. motivation, you know, was less one of honoring the, uh, you know, the, the worthy dead than it was protecting their real estate interests. Yeah. Um, but those are the only two, and you're quite right that one of the reasons why it's so hard um, for people who live in or even visit New York to to get a handle on this is that there's nothing left. It's all
0: gone. Yeah, I was going to mention that, I wanted you to talk about that a little bit, because one of the most fascinating parts of the book is is the occasional aside where you attempt to locate something that happened in the contemporary, um, you know, Brooklyn or Manhattan uh, landscape, and you just can't, because literally everything is gone, and it got me thinking. You know, here in Iowa City, I live in a house that's 100 years old, surrounded by houses that are somewhere between 150 and 100 years old. Downtown, there are many buildings that say, you know, 1860, 1850. None of that really survives in, in in...
1: No, I mean, and, and New York City, remember, was founded in the 1620s, yeah, exactly. and there is not a single building, um, with one exception, standing in modern New York City that was constructed before the American Revolution. That's astounding. In other words, 150 years of the city's history has essentially been obliterated. Yeah, yeah. Um, the exception that I have in mind, of course, is St. Paul's Chapel, which mm-hmm. is on Lower Broadway, just below, mm-hmm. just below City Hall Park. Um, I mean, You could argue about the Morris Juno Mansion way, way in Upper Manhattan, but yep, that was yep. outside the city at the time mm-hmm. of the Revolution. So it's all gone. Um, it's all very new. It's all really late 19th. Uh, 20th century uh, mm-hmm. built environment and um, the same thing is really true over in Brooklyn
2: it's mm-hmm. really
1: hard uh, to remember that the biggest battle of the Revolutionary War was fought in Brooklyn Yeah, yep. you know Brooklyn and you you can wander around for years and not find anything that connects to that story
0: quite astonishing yeah I find that kind of astounding in a sense because I grew up in the Midwest and, and actually in Kansas and um, I remember kind of having the sense that the things that I thought were old weren't really very old but then you know i spent some time on the east coast and i realized that everything there was newer than than the things that i saw
1: remember that there are places like philadelphia and boston
0: yeah where you can go and and
1: um and see stuff that's really quite ancient by american standards you can go visit paul revere's house yeah certainly yeah in, uh, in, in boston or you can Go see uh, you know, Carpenter's Hall in Philadelphia. Yeah. Um, different you know, different cities have different sort of municipal cultures mm-hmm. and, and New York is is a place that as I as I often uh say to audiences, is is quite historicidal when you when you compare it with with other major American cities.
0: Oh I think that's absolutely right. Yeah, I did live in Boston and they've done a nice job of preserving much of it. Um, yeah, and, um and, 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 and so so has Philadelphia, especially Philadelphia, I would say. Um but New York it, it really is in it. It really is incredible how much the physical environment has changed and changes all the time. Um, it's, it's. I would like to see a time lapse uh, film of New York yeah. for the last 300 years because it would, so it would look, look that's like
1: that's why. The, that's why people come to New York after all. Yeah, you know? uh, people come to New York to escape the past, not to, not to, not to find it. It's the, it's the secret of New York's uh, continuing appeal, yeah. and it's, it's not, it's, it's not uh, connected to Held down by the dead hand of yes yeah, yeah no. but it's all over Boston and Philadelphia.
0: Yeah, that makes it that makes your job a little bit more difficult. But uh, but it's a very interesting place to live. I did live in New York for a year, um, and uh, yeah, I, my time it was very enjoyable. I, I really I really it's liked it nice. a lot. Let, let me yeah, let me ask you a, a kind of. A, um, not a concluding question, but a question I'm sure everybody is interested in, and that is, what impact did the um, horrible treatment of American prisoners during the Revolutionary War have on American attitudes toward the treatment of prisoners of war more generally after the war, if any?
1: Well, um, that's a bigger question than I really deal with in the book. I, I make a couple of suggestions about it. Um, in, the, in the aftermath, in the immediate aftermath of the war, um, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, and John Adams were told by Congress to go out and start arranging, negotiating treaties with European powers. And one of the things that they attempted to do in these treaties was to create um, specific provisions for the, uh, the correct treatment of prisoners of war. And I mentioned this um, at, toward the end of the book as a as testimony to the concern that Americans had about the mistreatment of prisoners and that it was, in, in Franklin's um, mind, particularly extremely important that the United States uh, take steps to prevent such things from happening again in the future. And um, I think that Franklin had a, a very keen sense that um, the United States needed to be on record as opposing um, the mistreatment of prisoners and, and preventing something from from happening to americans um, or anyone else mm-hmm. that happened to americans during the revolutionary war um, that's it's a long way obviously from some of those very early treaties to the geneva accords in the, in the you know, early 20th century but i i do think that um, I do think that the revolutionary the experience of the revolutionary war convinced many Americans that um that the country should be uh, that the country should should do what it could to prevent that sort of thing from happening in the future. Mm-hmm. And uh, obviously obviously that hasn't always worked that way and there are certainly um, there are certainly occasions during the Revolutionary War itself when when it was pretty clear that Americans were just as capable as, uh, as the British were of mistreating prisoners. Mm-hmm. But I was just struck by this sense that what Americans had experienced uh, as as prisoners of the British had somehow changed the way that they thought about the future and that, that the country should... Be committed to some kinds of humanitarian principles, which which um, would set it apart from other countries in the world.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, then, after these, after after the war was concluded, uh, just to kind of finish up the story, after the war was concluded and all these prisoners were released—that is, those who had been lucky enough to survive—were uh, they um, were they honored in any particular way by the government, or were they given pensions? You mentioned, you know, you mentioned pensions.
1: No, they just disappeared. I mean, the government. Um, there were no marching bands, no welcoming committees, no, mm-hmm. no laurel wreaths, and that sort of thing. These guys just uh, the, the gates. The, the gates were opened up. They were. They were not all released at once. There was a kind of process by which they were set free in the early months of 1783. Mm-hmm. And by the time the, the British left um, in, in November of 1783, um, most of them were gone, and they just kind of, you know, they straggled home. Mm-hmm. Um, there was not much interest in in providing them with pensions because um because the, the feeling was um that uh, military service was something that you that you did as part of your civic duties it was like voting if you will um and that uh, we don't we don't compensate people mm-hmm. voting. we don't reward them for doing their civic duties mm-hmm. so why should why should the country reward uh, veterans uh, there were some exceptions that were made for, for veterans who had been wounded, but um, regular veterans, there was no sense that um, military service entitled you to, to you know to get in line and and get a get a pension from the government mm-hmm. because that was the sort of thing that was simply required. It was your duty as a
0: citizen. Cincinnatus back to the plow. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But then that changed. You said that uh, if I if I heard you correctly, you said that um, a number of decades later that it was decided to actually give them. Yeah,
1: pensions. there was uh, there was growing pressure, uh, particularly in the years around the, war, during the run up to the war of 1812. Uh, for a variety of reasons, there was a, there was a growing sentiment in the country that something should be done. Um, to, to compensate and recognize the sacrifices of veterans. And slowly but surely, legislation was adopted. There was some in the 18 teens and there was some in the 1820s. And finally, it wasn't until really the 1830s that, that Congress uh, really decided to, uh, to grant pensions to uh, all Revolutionary War veterans um, if they could prove that they, in fact, have served. By which time, you know, large numbers of them had already uh, to their reward. Yeah. So uh, it was a it was a, it was a complicated and tortured
0: process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's it's very interesting how yeah that 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 notion of republicanism, that Cincinnati's back to the plow notion, is is I won't say it's completely lost. I mean, we have a memory of it, but. It has now fallen uh, into abeyance, I would say, or it's some well, sort of it's, it's attenuated. yeah, it's attenuated. Yeah, it's not really. We we have a very different attitude about these these things today. I mean, we've just gone through um, Veterans Day, which is an entire, um, you know, a holiday to s- celebrate the, the services of, right. of these people. So yeah, it has changed quite a bit, and it's very interesting. Yeah. So, well, Ted, thank you very much. We've taken up a lot of your time, um, and it's a terrific book. I want to say that. And uh, I want to close with uh, what is our traditional question on uh, new books in history, and that is what are you working on now?
1: <laughs> well, um, I've, I've got a couple of uh, things that I am, uh, am looking at. No, no decisions have been made yet. But one of them that I'm interested in is the, uh, the, and I don't know whether there's a book in this or not, it's just something that I've been intrigued by. Um, there was um, a, a massive volcanic explosion um, in 1815. Um, Mount uh, Tambor blew up and created um, such a cloud of ash and sulfuric acid that it essentially uh, prevented North America from, from having a summer in the year 1816. Which really? In fact, known as the year without a summer.
2: Hmm.
1: It was snowing in the middle of June, July as so far as I can determine has never received um, the attention that I think it, it might receive uh, obviously from people who are uh, climatically sensitized as we are.
0: Well, I'm I'm more ignorant than most, but I have never heard of it, so, yeah, so that's an uh, encouraging note. I, <laughs> I think it
1: would be a really interesting thing to look into in terms of the cultural and economic consequences of something like this, mm-hmm. but as I say, I've just been... I just thinking about it, and I really don't know if there's a, a much a, a much more to be said about it.
0: Mm-hmm. And then the second? In the, second? Uh,
1: the second one is, uh, I've long been fascinated by a building in New York City called the Crystal Palace, which was hmm. uh, the largest building uh, of its time in the United States. It was built in the early 1850s, and was on the site of uh, that is now Bryant Park, just behind Public Library. Oh yeah, thank you. Um, it was a kind of a scaled-down version of the Crystal Palace in England, in London,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and it was uh, the first great public exposition of American art and industry mm-hmm. in the United States. Mm-hmm. So that it was the biggest building, and it was the first time that Americans had showcased uh, all of the products of the Industrial Revolution. And it drew thousands of people to New York. Mm-hmm. Came and saw and uh, stayed over in hotels and restaurants. It was really the, the beginning, in the sense, of New York as a, as a kind of tourist destination in mm-hmm. the
0: United States. Here, it's another one of these cases where it does not survive. I mean, if you've been to Brand Park, five there's years nothing of there. Good, I mean that is a typical New York story though. Typical New York story. Here today, gone. <laughs> and it, has,
1: it has the benefit of, of, of a relatively short lifespan. Yeah. Um, I, and it, it also is a subject that that I, that, his, that historians have neglected because it, it's it, as I say it's it's the beginning in a sense of this whole tradition of world affairs. Mm-hmm. Um, so it has a lot of appeal as a. As a kind of moment in the cultural history of the United States. But, again, whether there's a whether there's more to be said about it, I just don't know. I'm keeping an open
0: mind. Well, uh, they both sound like terrific projects to me. And uh, whichever one you complete first, and I'm sure you'll complete both, please please get in touch and we'll have you back on the show again to talk about those. Yeah, no, it was great talking to you today. We really appreciate you being on the show. The book is Forgotten Patriots, the untold story of American prisoners during the Revolutionary War. Ted Burroughs, thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Marshall. It was a pleasure. Uh, okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Edwin Burroughs about his new book, Forgotten Patriots, the untold story of American prisoners during the Revolutionary War. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.